We're starting now. All right. I uh, said yesterday that I would do something more Marxy for this one, and I was looking at uh, Jacobin articles that uh, I'd read in that uh, might be good to use as taking off points, and I found one I wrote a little while back about uh, Ben Shapiro and some comments that he made about Marxism that I thought might be a good takeoff point for the discussion. I don't expect that much of today is going to be spent actually talking about the, uh, the article, but... Um, so uh, please do call in, or this could be a real short show. Uh, you know, want to keep it relatively tight, but you know, would like to. Uh, uh, but uh, to have a decent sized show at all, we should uh, should have some calls. Uh, but in any case, uh, so the article that I wrote uh, when I posted about this um, on uh, Twitter and Facebook, I included the link to it. It's called "Ben Shapiro Thinks Quote Marxism Can't Work in America." Unquote. He is very confused. Um, and uh, so the, the taking off point for the articles, I say uh, conservative pundit Ben Shapiro posted a video on his YouTube channel uh, titled Marxism Can't Work in America. And he starts with a series of historical claims about race, class, Marxism, and American history. So I'm just going to start at the beginning uh, with this this big uh, poll quote from the Ben Shapiro video. So this is all Shapiro that I'm quoting right now. He says, when you have high levels of, I'm not going to do it all like that, of societal income mobility, when you can be born into America and become very, very wealthy, uh, when you can be a middle class person and you can get rich, it's very difficult to make the case that the system is stacked against you. So the left had to come up with another way to ram their cultural Marxism, I love that, through, and what they came up with was race. Right? So let me do that sentence again. When you have high levels of societal income mobility, when you can be born in America and become very, very wealthy, when you can be a middle-class person you can get rich, it's very difficult to make the case the system is stacked against you. So the left had to come up with another way to ram their cultural Marxism through, and what they came up with was race. Just... Such a beautifully confused sentence. He goes on, because while the United States historically has not had massive class distinctions that are hard and fast, it has had race distinctions that were hard and fast for the vast majority of America's lifetime, uh, right up until the 1960s. So from, 19, from 1776 to the 1960s, you had hard and fast racial distinctions in law in many parts of the country, and that was a serious problem. So what the Marxists did is they globbed onto this, and they said, aha, what we need to do to make Americans understand their systems are racist and you tear down the system so you have essentially racial mobility. That is the only way to do this. Man, I'm just going to reread the last paragraph of that just because it is such a tangle of insanity. Uh, so Shapiro says, quote, so what the American Marxists did is they globbed onto this. And they said, aha, what we need to do is to make Americans understand the systems are racist and you need to tear down the systems so you can have essentially racial mobility. That is the only way to do this. Unquote. Wow. All right. <laughs> so switching from uh, Shapiro to uh, to me, I uh, I go on to uh, to say after that I read from the article. As Shapiro continues the story, the end of de jure segregation in the mid 1960s should have removed quote any remaining excuse you have for some sort of revolution based on class unquote. Instead of giving up, though, Marxists invented uh, critical race theory, which claims that notionally racially neutral policies and institutions can be discriminatory in their effects. 
even if Shapiro's factual premises were not completely erroneous, most importantly, uh, given the way he sets all this up, the United States actually does not have high levels of class mobility relative to uh, comparable nations. His assumption that a high rate of upward mobility would be enough to blunt the socialist critique of economic inequality shows that he has no idea of what and why that critique is. In other words, you know, forgetting the fact that he's using the word Marxism in a really weird way here, which I do want to get into as we continue the discussion, um, even if his premise were correct about income mobility in the United States, the idea that any rate of upward mobility would be, you know, would be relevant at all, really, uh, to the socialist critique of economic inequality really shows that he has no clue what he's talking about. Um, and, you know, just by the by, if you follow my hyperlink for the article about uh, how the United States actually does not have high levels of income mobility compared to, uh, you know, relative to comparable nations, uh, you know, what you'll find is, um, so this is, uh, hold on, I've got a bunch of different countries uh, being compared here. Uh, and so we've got, uh, you know, this table and the link to uh, mobility outcomes for men whose fathers are at the bottom and top of their earning distributions. Uh, so, you know, in the... Um, in Denmark, um, the percentage, uh, about 25% of men whose fathers were in the bottom fifth uh, stayed in the bottom fifth. So again, this is people who were born into the bottom fifth or men whose fathers are in the bottom fifth who remained in the bottom fifth. Denmark, 25%. Finland, not quite as good, 28%. Norway, also 28%. Sweden, uh, 20, uh, yeah, what does that say? Yeah, 26%. Uh, United Kingdom, 30%, so significantly worse than the Nordics. Um, United States, 42% of people who started the top, you know, men who started the top fifth in terms of their father's income remain, or sorry, the bottom fifth, uh, remain in the bottom fifth. So again, Denmark, 25% of men whose fathers are in the bottom fifth remain in the bottom fifth. United States, a full 42% of men whose fathers are in the bottom fifth uh, remain in the bottom fifth. And there are a whole bunch of other stats like that if you follow that link. Uh, the United States actually kind of sucks, uh, especially compared to the Nordics in terms of advanced countries' income mobility. Um, but again, I say even if the factual premise were not completely erroneous, which it is, uh, his assumption that there's a conceptual link here just, just would not make any sense. Um, so, you know, I have a section here in the article called Ben Shapiro versus American History, where I say it's tempting to imagine Ben Shapiro being transported to West Virginia a century ago, uh, during the coal wars, so he could explain to the striking coal miners dodging bullets from Pinkertons that no white people in America at the time were impacted by, quote, massive class distinctions, unquote, and that any class distinctions that might exist at least weren't, quote, hard and fast, unquote. Surely, if they went back to work and focused on making sure their kids did their homework, uh, it wouldn't take more than a generation or two for any family of coal miners to become a family of coal parents, right, Ben? Um, putting that silliness aside, though, 
Shapiro's grasp of the relevant history really veers off into oblivion on the questions of A, Marxism, and B, race. So um, it's true enough that the Socialist Party of America and the Communist Party USA were among the very few predominantly white organizations in the United States that put any kind of premium on the fight for racial equality in the 1930s and 40s. But does Shapiro really think that fighting racism was something that they had to focus on because their message about class injustice just wasn't resonating? I mean, taken literally, that does sound like what he's saying, but man, that is hard to take seriously. In fact, the opposite would be closer to the truth. For American socialists in the heyday of socialism, talking about class was the easy part. That was the path of least resistance. Race and racism were the difficult subjects, the issues that posed naughty strategic problems that socialists could sometimes be tempted to try to evade. Socialists spent most of their time on the economic issues that impacted working people of all races. And those appeals resonated with plenty of workers. I mean, this is an era, if we're talking about the 19, you know, the last generation before desegregation, you know, so the, the greatest generation, uh, you know, the 30s and 40s. This is an era when even a tiny Trotskyist party, the Socialist Workers Party, led successful general strikes in mid-sized American city, uh, Minneapolis. Uh, citywide general strikes that were successful, led by the Socialist Workers Party. Uh, if you could read uh, Farrell Dobbs, I think that's his correct first and last name. He wrote a series of books about this. The first and most famous one is called Teamster Rebellion, um, and but he wrote a bunch of you know he wrote a bunch of other books too. But that's the that's the first one about the, the big strikes that they were leading leading into these general strikes and the way they kind of organized the whole city against the bosses. Um, obviously, uh, before uh, the uh, the Jimmy Hoffa types uh, took over the Teamsters uh, later and you know cleaned out all the commies. But more importantly, the idea that Americans who were involved in the civil rights movement understood their goal. Uh, sorry, the, you know, more importantly, the idea that Marxists who were involved in the civil rights movement understood their goal as, in, in Shapiro's words, quote, essentially racial mobility, unquote, is bizarre. And this gets to Shapiro's core area of confusion about the point of socialist objections to economic inequality. And notice, I mean, we do want to keep track of this, you know, like supposedly, you know, he's, he says Marxism can't work in America. And we haven't said anything that actually has much of anything to do with Marxism yet. We've talked a little bit about socialist politics and uh, the politics of racial equality, but um, haven't really gone to Marxism. We, we will get there, but just want to kind of keep track of that. So what I say in the article is, it is true that many liberals equate social justice with equal levels of upward mobility for all demographic groups. So if you read like Thomas Frank's book, Listen Liberal, Whatever Happened to the Party of the People, and what's essentially a companion volume, which is the people know a brief history of anti-populism. He's very eloquent on this point, this redefinition of um, social justice within contemporary liberalism to mean just letting the best and brightest from each demographic group rise to the top in a meritocracy. Uh, and that is a view that seems to be reflected at least some strands of the granted quite broad academic tradition known as critical race theory, CRT. In Ben Shapiro's rant about CRT later in the video, he contemptuously references a 1992 story 
written by critical race theorist Derek Bell called The Space Traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, like trading, in which space aliens visit Earth and offer a vast amount of wealth to the white population in exchange for re-enslaving the black population and selling them to the aliens. Shapiro's point to bringing this up is to dismiss the space traders' ridiculous exercise in demonizing white Americans, since in Derek Bell's story, the, the white people vote yes for uh, selling the black people to the aliens. Writing that current affairs, though, uh, my friend Nathan Robinson uh, has offered a thoughtful defense of the aspect of the real situation that Derek Bell's parable gets right. So this is a quote from an article that Nathan wrote about the CRT wars. Quote, with every, each passing year, the country's governing institutions allow black people to die who could be saved if whites were willing to expend a small amount of illegitimately accumulated wealth. For instance, the black infant mortality rate is over twice that of, uh, sorry, is over twice the white infant mortality rate. We could pay to address this problem and relatively easily through guaranteeing quality health care to all and addressing the social determinants of poor health outcomes, but we don't. Uh, what is this but choosing money at the expense of black lives? In other words, the despicable bargain of the space traders was not a hypothetical. It was just another way of looking at existing reality. Every dollar spent on luxury housing that is not spent on improving black health care and black schools is a deal made with the space traders. End quote. So thinking about what Nathan wrote there, uh, the, the comment that uh, that I make in uh, in my Jackman article is this. I say, there's a straightforward sense in which all of this is correct. Although most of the so-called racial wealth gap is at the top of the income distribution. Um, really important point, uh, which we will get back to. It's certainly true that the historical effect of Jim Crow has been to concentrate a disproportionate percentage of the black population at the bottom end of that distribution. This would be true even if there was literally no racially discriminatory behavior going on anywhere in American society, which of course there is. There's plenty of statistical evidence for that in terms of like, you know, job, you know, the exact same job application with a black sounding name and with a white sounding name. Uh, the white sounding name is more likely to get a call back um, in terms of statistics about you know, who gets pulled over by the police and the sundown effect and all of that. So, of course, there is racially discriminatory behavior uh, in the present tense, much less than it used to be, but there still is. But this is the point that, you know, as I said, the historical effect of Jim Crow has been a concentrated uh, disproportionate percentage of the black population at the bottom end of the economic distribution. And this would be true even if there was literally no racially discriminatory behavior going on anywhere in American society for the obvious reason that people who are born into poverty are far more likely, I mean, even in Finland, never mind in the U.S., far more likely to end up in poverty than people who are born into the middle class. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. But Marxist scholars like Adolf Reed or like, um, you know, my friend Touré Reed or my friend Pascal Robert or Cedric Johnson or Barbara Fields um, would ask a, a slightly different question here. What they would ask is, is the objectionable part the poverty or how the poverty is racially distributed? In the sense that poor black people who go to substandard schools and have substandard health care 
are being metaphorically sold to the space traders, isn't the same true of equally poor white people who experience the same material conditions? Would a just society be one in which demographically uh, correct percentages of each group uh, went to schools where they had to pass through metal detectors every day and lost their uh, babies because of substandard health care leading to higher mortality, while a demographically proportionate percentage of each group was able to rise to the top? Socialists certainly haven't thought so. Um, we have wanted the, you know, to end poverty for, for everybody, not just to distribute it in a supposedly more fair way. Um, if you think that, you know, that the existence of these conditions in a substantially, you know, a materially prosperous society is, is unfair by its very nature, then there is no fair distribution of it. Uh, and this maybe finally takes us to the point about Marxism, you know, because I said earlier, look, we've been talking about how Shapiro is sort of confused about the basic normative motivations for socialist politics. But the normative motivations for socialist politics is one question. Marxism is a slightly different question. So Marxism is a word that can mean a lot of different things. Uh, and I understand one thing it means in practice when somebody says, I'm a Marxist, or, you know, my friend such and such is a Marxist, or, you know, whatever. I understand part of what they typically mean is that that person is committed to, um, is, is committed to radical socialist politics. But Marxism, strictly speaking, is a theory of history. It's a theory of how uh, class societies work, uh, how class relations work under different modes of production, uh, slave, feudal, capitalist, socialist, um, that last one finally being classless, uh, and uh, how those modes of production rise and fall through class struggle through history, right? I mean, that, that's what Marxism is, uh, if we're going to use terms more precisely than the Ben Shapiro's of the world uh, typically uh, typically like to, uh, to use them. So when I say Marxism, you know, really what, what I would need is a couple of things. One is the view that the, you know, with the inevitable nitpicks and caveats put aside. Um, but roughly is that, you know, view from 10,000 feet, ignoring the complexities, is that the legal and political institutions of any society uh, are downstream from a certain set of class relations between lords and peasants, between slaves and masters, between proletarians and capitalists, um, and that those social relations themselves, that, that mode of production, the sense of that mode of how to organize society into classes, uh, to, you know, in order, like how to organize the productive activities of society, you know, with a certain class structure is itself downstream of a certain level of development of the forces of production. So the relations of production means like, okay, do you have a society with uh, lords and serfs? Do you have a society with workers and capitalists? Uh, forces of production just means the, um, the capacity of a society to produce stuff, the farms, the factories, the level of technology and the level of implementation of that technology, all of that stuff. Um, so what does it mean to say that the that um, 
the class relations are, are downstream of certain level of development of the um, of the forces of production. Well, I think it could mean at least two things. One is a stronger claim, and the other is a slightly weaker claim that's more obviously true. Um, and so the the stronger claim is that there's some sense in which the level of development of the forces of production uh, just kind of um, forces a change in the uh, relations of production. So, you know, if you think about um, the transition from um, from feudalism to capitalism, which, you know, involves stuff like the end of the old guild system where, you know, the guilds for certain trades would say, well, you can have a master craftsman who could have a certain number, but only a certain number of apprentices, which would rule out having a factory where there are like hundreds of people working together. But the advantages of that arrangement, that factory arrangement just becomes so overwhelming as technology improves and all that, that eventually, inevitably, people are going to flout the law and eventually change the law. That's a small example of, of how those things could be could be linked. Um, or a grimmer example is uh, thinking about slavery in Haiti, that um, part of the reason for the, the slave system in, you know, in Haiti, part of the reason that was so uh, intractable, even after the revolution, that the, um, you know, Toussaint Louverture and his, you know, successors uh, were so slow motion about really moving away from it that they would, you know, they, they sort of, if you listen to like the season of Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast and the Haitian Revolution, uh, they um, that uh, they really get into the the details about that. But like in the early stages, you know, they really abolished slavery by some very slow degrees in the process because you know the reason both that even the the rebels who had themselves formerly been slaves and and certainly you know in many cases uh, and. Uh, when they took over, and certainly the French, when they were in charge, you know, were, were so reluctant to do that, is that the economy uh, of, you know, Saint-Domingue originally, uh, before it became Haiti, was so tightly linked to that because the kinds of crops they were growing, you know, sugarcane uh, primarily, uh, among others, but, you know, in, in Haiti, in those conditions, is just you know good luck finding any people to do that as volunteers because uh, they bring people in and they just die right away because the conditions were so bad they had to just kind of constantly throw new slaves into that human meat grinder of a uh, of a system. Um, so that's like a sort of horror show example of of how the level of development of the forces of production and the relations of production can be can be linked. You know, but I think there's a more general sense in which you know feudalism. Um, is like a, a set of productive relations that makes sense for an agrarian society where uh, there's not a lot of development going on and you basically want to keep the peasants uh, exactly where they are and feed them some bullshit about how God wants them to be there uh, so they'll continue to, to grow your crops for you. Whereas when you start to get the Industrial Revolution, uh, then there's much more of an impetus for a, a different kind of labor force, a more mobile labor force that can move around and is, in Marx's phrase, uh, doubly free, right? That, in other words, both legally free to make contracts with any employer who will have them, but also free from any means of supporting themselves other than, uh, than you know, entering into capitalist labor contracts. 
Okay. Um, so the uh, so there's the strong version of the claim is that the change in the forces of production somehow like determines a change in the relations of production. And I think there's not nothing to that. I think there's definitely something to that. I think there is a sense in which the causality does often ride in that direction. That, in other words, like, okay, you could read Brenner and find out this very specific historical story about the Black Plague that tells you something about how capitalist social relations got their first foothold in um, in England um, in the 14th century or whatever. Uh, but uh, that doesn't tell you how that became the, the globally dominant mode of production. Uh, and I don't think you can tell that story without assigning a star and role to the way that that system unfettered the further development of the forces of production from feudalism. But I think the, um, the so I think there's definitely a lot of truth in the stronger claim. But the weaker claim is, okay, you have... Uh, it's at the very least the level of development of the forces of production constrains what system of relations of production you can have that it's even possible to to have at that at that time so uh that you you need to um you couldn't have had you know i don't know if the uh, to adapt an example from walter walter dom who's a uh marxist uh marxist theorist uh in uh the late 20, 20th, early 21st century. Maybe he's still working. I hope he is. Uh, you know, it's a marginal sectarian, but a very smart guy. Um, so to adapt an example from Walter Dom, it's it's not like if Adam and Eve had been given copies of uh, Milton and Rose Friedman's book, Free to Choose, instead of, uh, instead of apples in the Garden of Eden, that they could have just had capitalism right then and there. You need a certain level of development of the productive forces for that to, um, for that to work. And then the way all of this finally relates back to what we've been talking about with the unfortunate Mr. Shapiro, and I see there are a couple of uh, people in the queue uh, to uh, call in, so I'm going to wrap this up and start taking calls in just a minute. But to bring it back to Mr. Shapiro, the point is how Marxism, right, that theory of history, that theory of how class societies work, relates to the stuff that I've been saying that he gets wrong about the sort of basic foundational motives for socialist politics, that the fact that he's, he's so thoroughly, he's so mummified in his own ideological assumptions that he assumes that even Marxists only care about upward mobility. They don't care, you know, about, um, they don't care about the people at the bottom. They only care that the best and the brightest are able to rise to the top. Uh, is that the whole point is that Marxists say, look, capitalism has created conditions of widespread enough material prosperity that now that creates the possibility of a more egalitarian social order arising that, um, that isn't just the more equal distribution of crumbs, that we can have a really meaningfully free society because uh, people don't have to be forced to work even through the sort of fear of hunger, that you can you can have a much more equal, much more democratic version of economic arrangements uh, without everything collapsing. Uh, and that's what we want. So going back to the last part of the article, I say the great American socialist rabble rouser Eugene V. Debs famously said that he wanted to rise not, quote, from the ranks, but with the ranks. 
the upward mobility of the United that uh, the rate of upward mobility of the United States is much lower than Shapiro seems to think it is. In fact, it's highest in social democratic societies like Denmark and Finland and Norway. But whatever it was, it would be almost entirely beside socialist point. We don't object to quote massive class distinctions unquote because they're too quote hard and fast unquote. We object to them all by themselves. Our problem with the amount of inequality generated by capitalism isn't that we think the wrong people are rising to the top. It's that we think no human being deserves to live the way they have to live if they end up on the bottom. And since it's impossible for everybody to meritocratically advance, pretty much by definition, who are you advancing past? Equating justice with unhindered advancement means ignoring the needs of the bulk of the population. And more importantly, inequalities in distribution of material resources reflect a deep inequality in distribution of power in capitalist economies. Um, that you know, Jeff Bezos gets spaceship money, and if you work at Amazon, uh, you might have to have a second job because Jeff Bezos decides how to split up the pie. Um, if his warehouses are unionized, which is an excellent first step in the right direction, then the workers get a little bit of a say, but still not nearly as much of a say as he does. It's true that liberal meritocrats think that justice means letting the best and the brightest from each group rise to the top, but it's profoundly telling that Shapiro's political imagination is so limited that he thinks even Marxists share this assumption. That's the kind of belief that suggests that you don't so much exist within a conservative echo chamber as a whole series of echo chambers embedded within echo chambers like Russian nested dolls. Ben Shapiro should actually talk to a Marxist sometime. Last line of the article is there's no telling what he might learn. And with that, I am going to go to the chat. Let's, uh, sorry, go to the caller queue. Let's start out with John. Hey, Ben. You hear me? Yep. What's on your mind? Um, you know what's on my mind? There's a lot of stuff on my mind with this article. Um, it was a great article, by the way. Well written. Thank you. Um, I guess as I probably put it bluntly, excuse my nervousness, by the way. Uh, Ben Shapiro doesn't know what the fuck Marxism is. Excuse my language. No, I mean, he clearly does it because... Um, because he's he's talking about he's he's using as if they're like indistinguishable concepts, you know, Marxism and something called cultural Marxism, which um, is is a concept that some right wingers believe in. But but I literally don't know what that would be. Um, Marxism is a bunch of claims about how various societies have organized material resources and um and sure that could make downstream predictions about what the cultural and other kinds of effects are going to be but uh but that's not you know but if like it seems like what he's really talking about is like cultural liberalism and then he's um you know he's just equating that with with marxism which you know to be fair is a is a classic conservative move going way back uh before the birth of karl marx to uh like Edmund Burke uh, and Joseph de Maistre, you know, when they were when they were freaking out about the French Revolution, the sort of equated liberal reformism with radical revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that you're right. Uh, I mean, I think you're right to say that it is at best, uh, very unclear, uh, what, you know, what he, what he thinks, uh, he thinks Marxism even is. I mean, he's got an inkling with the, the stuff about the, um, when he talks about class distinctions, he's like, okay, so these Marxists mm. seem to be saying something or other about class. So what could it be? Well, what, what could somebody get upset about that was in some way about class? Well, it must be that they're upset that it's not easy enough to sort of rise from one class position to another class position. This must be they're saying it's too hard and fast. But of course, uh, in Shapiro's worldview, it is it isn't hard and fast because America is the land of opportunity. So then, well, I guess has has there been anybody who has that opportunity? Well, I guess black people back when we were an apartheid country that had. Uh, that had legal segregation, uh, legally mandated segregation. So I guess that must be what they're talking about. And that must be why they, right. Cause he assumes this is all the same thing made up critical race theory. So that as far as I can, is to the extent that I'm capable of getting into his head and figuring out his line of thought, that's about it. I feel like, like, uh, if, like if, if Ben Shapiro actually did this, if I had to have any kind of book recommendation, so to speak of Marx, or yeah. Ben Shapiro, not that he would, because we know, again, how his worldview is. I would give uh, the Marx Engels reader to yeah. Ben Shapiro. And, like, this is something that goes way, way back into um, uh, the early history of Marx. Just start off from scratch. And then, hopefully, Shapiro, you would know what Marxism is and the meaning of it in general. But, I don't, again, I don't think that, <laughs> yeah, again, given Shapiro's own worldview, it, he, he probably just, like, skim a few pages and then, like, set the book down. And not yeah, up. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I mean, I don't know. Give him the communist manifesto. Yeah. Jordan Peterson read that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I should. I, I'd actually say. I mean, this is a little bit of a weird one, but um, in like, I often think if I could get some of these people to read just a little bit of Marx, um, I think you could probably like, you know, curate like a ten pages or so from Capital that. Uh, would be would be helpful and accessible, and then like um, and then I think actually, and, you know, yeah, I mean, communist manifesto maybe. And then like maybe actually this is a, again a slightly weird one, but maybe like just the first chapter of the critique of the Gotha program uh, because or or maybe just like part of the first chapter, like you know, there's some stuff uh, there's some stuff at the, in that first chapter that's not super relevant, but. If you go later in the chapter, Mark says a lot of things that um, might really surprise them because, like, there's this, he, you know, like, people, like, a certain kind of, like, right-wing anti-communist will make a big deal saying, oh, well, people aren't equal because some people are, you know, smarter, more meritorious than others. And, you know, they uh, find, in fact, Marx say the same thing, but drawing a very different conclusion is saying... Uh, that actually it, it's ridiculous to say that everybody's what everybody gets back and in, um, in consumption should just be proportional to whatever they put in in production because then some people you know are just smarter, stronger, faster, more talented and, they, and that's not under their control. So you know you're rewarding a kind of uh, you know natural aristocracy there. That's not good. Uh, and you'd also find him saying something I think would really surprise them because I think to the extent that even people who are a little, a little bit more advanced than Shapiro could get that it's like, okay, uh, socialists think that the sort of distribution of um, income under capitalism is, is, 
is horrendous, which is certainly true enough, we do. But uh, they get to the really important point, which is where he sort of goes through some of his ideas about how uh, consumption can be distributed in a social society. And then he says the really important thing at the end, which is, look, but this is all kind of a secondary question because the, the real sort of primary question isn't about uh, the distribution of what he calls the means of consumption, right? In other words, income. The real primary question is about the distribution of the means of production, about, you know, economic power, you know, is who, who is, you know, if, uh, if workers get to decide democratically, you know, how the, the product of their labor is, is uh, split up, then whatever the results are, they're not going to be as catastrophically awful as, uh, as what they are under capitalism is really his point. Mm-hmm. And if, if I could get people like that to sort of get one thing that they don't about, uh, what socialists actually think uh, that'll probably be it. It's it's like almost you'd probably want to have like a, like what you did with Charlie Kirk last year, just sit down with Ben Shapiro and do a debate and just like tell him this is what I think, this is what I believe rather of socialism. This is what I believe that socialism is about, and then just like you just go take it from there. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. Um, and I think. Uh, I think that there's a good, um, yeah, I, th- I think that, um, yeah, I mean, obviously I would love to do that. I, I am not optimistic uh, that it's going ha- to happen, especially because I, I uh, said, you know, there's the whole thing on Joe Rogan, right, where I, I said, right. like, the, hey, I'd love to have Shapiro on my show sometime talk about this stuff. And, you know, Rogan was like, oh, yeah, no, I'll bet he would. And, uh, and then, uh, obviously it'd be hard to believe he didn't know about that. And, uh, and then in the more recently, I, I, I have some, uh, fairly specific, when I wrote that article about him for the Daily Beast, uh, after the, uh, podcast and convention, that whole business, um, I, I have some pretty good reason to think that he read that article, uh, from, uh, uh, from somebody else who's talking to about around the same time. So I think he's just decided not to, uh, but uh, obviously that would be a lot of fun if that ever happened. Maybe that should be a thing. We're about to sort of end the, the main show on YouTube. We're about to kind of take a little break for December, but we come back for the next uh, season in, uh, in January. Maybe that should be a, a thing. We should start doing a little um, like uh, we, sh- we should start that up as like a, a, as like a, a little recurring segment, you know, uh, renewing the offer to Ben Shapiro, but, uh, before he gets cold feet on you, get people to get people to tweet about it, all that stuff. That, that might be fun, but in any case, uh, I don't, I'm not super optimistic, but it might be fun anyway. Uh, thank you, uh, so much, John, uh, for, um, for the call. Uh, let's, uh, let's get Timothy. All right, Timothy, you uh, got to unmute yourself. It's on the bottom. There's a uh, on the bottom row. You should see a little microphone icon with a bar through it. So just just click that, and that should unmute you. Uh, yeah, it wasn't just that. It was like not letting me go through without enabling the camera. I guess. Am I coming uh, through? Oh, you are coming through. That's interesting. I actually, did uh, there? There's still. Um, I didn't realize that they got to the point, the point where that was even an option for callers, but that's cool. 
Yeah, so that I, I unmuted myself. I heard you telling me to unmute, and I'm like, I, I did it, I swear. Um, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was basically saying if I didn't allow my camera, then I couldn't even unmute. So oh, that's um, weird. either okay. way, uh, just based piggybacking off of that last little bit there, I do think that there is something to uh, the amount of like, I don't know, you want to call them right wing, whatever you want to call them, conservative, where they talk about that there's. There's nobody to debate, but I think, you know, they, they say, oh, any left-wing person who wants to debate me, there's no one who can stand up to me. I think that as a whole, basically anyone within the kind of the left-wing community, rather than taking anything thing like that seriously, should just pretty much instantly point to, you know, depending on the level that they're at, I'll say like different power levels. If it's low level, just say like Richard Wolf, and he can shut anybody down at the lower level. And then if you're someone who's actually read a book, then they talk to you. But I think like it's it's really insincere for them to say that there's nobody who can debate them when we have Richard Wolf, who I think is like the subtlety hammer, anybody at the low level who's never read a book, he can basically pretty easily explain the concepts of Marxism and then you for the finer detail work. So I appreciate what you're doing out there. Um, appreciate but, that. Uh, yeah, but uh, what I called to mention, and I don't know, it, it kind of plays into what you're talking about with Ben Shapiro. I don't know how focused you like to stay on the topic here but yeah, um, go, go, go nuts it's probably the last call so just you could wander off topic sure. if you want that's fine the uh the the clip that you recently played of your uh, debate again going circling back to the debate topic with uh curtis yarvin mentis molbug just really kind of displayed um i don't know i can't remember what the name of the the theory is or the the, the edict is but it's like that people get themselves promoted to a certain level and then once they get yeah, to yeah. a level that they can't what's that uh yeah i don't remember the phrase off the top of my head but i know what you're talking about yeah and, and curtis yarvin feels like a, a pretty good example of that a guy who um writing mentions molebug you know blogs and all this he was doing pretty good when no one really had to like see him or interact with him in any way but as he's kind of become more mainstream and then started to put himself out there you see the kind of i hate to you know be crass but the grotesquerie of the kind of person who who goes down that line of thinking and becomes so dark and in turns on themselves it's like they say you get the face you deserve but you kind of become <laughs> the avatar of of the disgusting politics that you profuse and what do you like what do you think about that like do these people who who pop and they are able to get people behind them but then as soon as they need a cult of personality and maybe that's why it's a, a good comparison point to someone like ben shapiro who has a, you know he's got a little bit of swagger even if it's not something that i want to have but obviously he's got something that works where he's popular in front of the camera where someone like yarvin i just think as soon as he's tried to become a public figure has just completely belly flopped because he's not nice to look at or interact with and on top of the fact that his ideas are bad yeah I mean, I think I think you're right that somebody like Shapiro does have, um, even if even if he doesn't necessarily seem likable to us, uh, that, uh, that 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 doesn't mean that everybody uh, feels that way. There is something about the persona that's appealing to a lot of people, uh, and that's a good thing to kind of uh, keep track of because I think sometimes, unfortunately, you know, we've left us are in a position uh, to uh, have. Uh, to um, like ask him a question or something, then uh, then we sometimes people end up sort of misusing the opportunity to sort of dunk on him in like Q and A sessions, or whatever, in ways that might be funny to us, 
uh, but just read as obnoxious uh, to, uh, to to people who aren't on the left who might otherwise, you know, so sort of sympathetically uh, listen to him. So uh, that's definitely that is definitely something to think about. Uh, Yarvin, uh, I'm just going to thumb for his mother that and not comment. But um, but I think you know I think what you were kind of saying about the like debates and all that is uh, is maybe worth like spending just a second on as we wrap this this one up. Uh, because I think that in um, like there's a germ of truth to something, some of what right wingers say about this, which is that there really are, you know, some people on the left who don't do that, or just like plenty of prominent people who are leftists who. who just already interested in, in debates, which is fine. There's no reason it's something everybody needs to be interested in. But also that there are some people on the left who have like these sort of weird anti-debate views, like it's bad to platform people by arguing with them. And that exists, and it's dumb, and you know, I've criticized it many times, but uh, also I think the much larger sort of element of falsehood to what right when you're saying about this is when they're like, oh nobody wants to argue with us. Like, well bullshit. Like, look, there might there might be a, you know, comparatively small number of leftists who do this, but every single one who does would be happy to argue with anybody who says stuff like that. Um ranging from uh people, you know, you mentioned Wolf and, and myself to people who are more sort of left social democrats like like Sam Cedar um, to again like there's there's a whole there's a cluster of people who are interested in doing this and all of them are actually you know very happy to, to engage with white ringers wherever uh, this is it's it's so silly to do the like uh, Dennis Prager kind of thing and pretend authority out there but uh, with that said I'm just gonna plug a couple things coming up and then um, and then uh, cut this off for today uh, because I, when I started doing this, there was still some light and I'm sitting on my porch and it sort of looked nice. You can see the woods behind me with the uh, faded light. And now it just looks like I'm sitting in the darkness like a weirdo trying to do the uh, Colonel Kurt scenes for Apocalypse Now. But uh, in any case, um, so a couple things I uh, should say. Uh, so one, um, we... Tomorrow morning at uh, Monday morning at 10 a.m. Uh, tickets uh, that's 10 a.m. Eastern Standard, so 7 a.m. if you live on the West Coast. Tickets are going on sale for the second Give Them an Argument slash Left Reckoning slash This Is Revolution live show, um, which this one's going to be at the Cutting Room in New York, so very close to Penn Station, very central and everything. On January 22nd, uh, it is going to have the aforementioned Sam Cedar, Emma Viglin, Jacobin Editor Bosco Sankara as guests uh it's and then yeah that's that's me uh jason miles um matt leck and david griscom as the hosts and uh also a lot of the other people from those shows should at least be there and you know you can i don't know i don't know if they're gonna be on stage or not at any point we still have a lot of figure this figure out but you can certainly if you do the meet and greet beforehand you can certainly meet and greet them people like uh our producer at GTA, uh, Jake Appett, people like our graphic designer, J. Andrew World, people like uh, uh, Deep State Cuba, 
uh, and uh, Jean Bajalan, uh, probably, uh, and Toussaint uh, from uh, from Mrs. Revolution. So, um, and, and yeah, I, I hope we do. At least some of those people almost certainly will be on stage at some point, but it should be a really fun event. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but, um, but in any case, uh, other two things I was going to mention are um, we are doing the last episode for a little while of the main show on YouTube uh, tomorrow night. Um, and because I'm about to be doing a whole bunch of traveling across the country and into Mexico. Uh, so um, so December, I'm still going to do the call-in show because this I can do. If I do the audio-only version, I can, I can even do it from the car while I'm driving through long stretches of highway. Uh, keeps me sane anyway. So I'll, I'll keep up the call-in show throughout December, but you know, mostly we'll be taking December, rather than maybe one or two streams, we'll be taking December off of the main show on YouTube. But the season finale... Uh, of the main show on YouTube is going to be tomorrow night at 8 Eastern. Uh, we are going to have uh, Matthew McManus as the main guest. Uh, he's going to be talking about an article that he wrote about uh, the John Stuart Mill and socialism, and sort of Mill's dalliances with socialist ideas, and the intellectual relationship between Mill and Marx. Should be a really interesting discussion. Uh, and then in the post game for your sort of um, you know, once you've uh, had your meat, as, uh, as as Pink Floyd so wisely tells us, you can have your pudding at the postgame. Uh, Ray Vada from the Young Turks is going to be on, and we're going to do some basic Duncan of right-wingers. So uh, should all be a lot of fun. Uh, really looking forward to all of that uh, tomorrow night. Uh, oh, and last thing I was going to mention before I go, um, I did a debate earlier this week uh, with Nadir Ahmed, uh, a, not a politics debate, but a philosophical debate on the existence of God. Uh, and we're going to be rerunning that uh, tonight on the YouTube channel as a premiere starting at 8 o'clock Eastern. So uh, check that out. That was very strange, but, uh, but also fun. Uh, and uh, I will cut it there for today. We may even be doing another one of these tomorrow. I'm not sure, but if not, then I, I doubt we're going to wait until later than Tuesday to do another one. I will see people then. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. Thank you so much uh, to uh, people who called in, uh, John and Timothy. Let